census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Episode 267 of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. My name is Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd, and we are here broadcasting from the uh, Pat Cave of Magenta Manor. And we are brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee, as we are part of the Dorkening Podcast Network. And uh, I am not here by myself. I am here, as always, with my co-host on the show, my co-host in life. She is the Baroness of Bordeaux, the Countess of Cabernet, the Mistress of Merlot, the Queen Regent of Rosé, the... Uh, Michael Phelps of Wine, the, the, the Real Housewife of Transylvania, the Queen of the Monsters, and an Honorary Lizzie. And I think I got two of those out of order, but I got all of them, so that's what counts. Ashes Von Nightmare. You're going to have to get me a better page. Ugh, I'm going to have to get, like, notes. But uh, as some of you may notice, this is not coming out on Thursday. And Welcome to Throwdown Thursday, the weekend edition. The reason why is because we have a very special interview for you uh, this week. Uh, it's a returning guest. Uh, I'm not going to spoil who it is yet because uh, you'll find out in the next segment. But, yeah, we have a returning guest, someone who uh, we talked to recently. It was an excellent interview, and uh, they've got new stuff out. So we want to talk to them again and get uh, the lowdown on their new newest work that comes out in October. So just in time for spooky season, this is going to be a great, great uh, interview, I'm sure, because uh, – we had a lot of fun with this person the last time that they were on, and uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of fun with them the next time they're on. And I'm just wondering if anything wacky happens during this interview. I'm guessing that something wacky just might happen, and I'm not saying that because we already recorded the interview, and I'm uh, recording this after the wacky thing that may have happened. I'm predicting it because I have uh, the future looking stuff <laughs> yeah press prescience precognition so uh you're, you're a misfortune teller yes yes but uh, i guarantee you it's funny as hell um so we decided for our getting into character question today because it fits well with the theme of our guest uh we're going to talk about uh our favorite crime novels whether true crime, you know, fiction, you know, you know, like a, like if you have a, a heist movie that's been, you know, uh, novelized, you know, something like that. So, uh, Ashes, what do you what do you have? Since this was your your idea. Yeah. So, um, I think I might. I'm gonna have to go with The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Uh, I devoured that book. Um, little uh, disappointed with the film adaptation, but the book itself, oh my God. I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, I was in college when I first read it, 
and it's just the the, the way that uh, everything is like a puzzle, and it takes from uh, real things, you know, real uh, things from religion, real so dark um, the con of man, you know, uh, looks into real people. Um, real looks into real paintings. artifacts, yeah, yeah and, and the way it just kind of combines everything, so it feels real, a little bit like um, oh, what's that? National Treasure. Oh, I fucking love with Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. Please come on our show. You know, <laughs> it's a it's a little bit like that. You know, where it takes from history and it takes all of these artifacts and it creates this Armor puzzle, steel, the Declaration this mystery, of Independence. and you know, people die and there's a you know a whole a whole thing that's happening and you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on, and everything is baited. You know, one thing after another after another, and and you just you can't put this book. Down because it's like I, I need to very short I chapters need as well. No, right? And, well, I'll just read you know, one more. Oh, it's a page and a half. Well, I'll just read one more, and then soon, then you realize you're like three quarters of the way through the book. <laughs> right, like and I, I will just... say that was the first time I've ever done a Nick Cage impression. So just throwing it out there. Oh, oh, is that what that was? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. That's not bad. <laughs> it needs work, but it's not bad oh, for a first a try. Great. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You mean that's your first try that's trying my, to do a Nicolas Cage impression? That's how much respect I have for him. I don't I don't do impressions of him because I have that much respect for him. Okay. Now, this is my impression of him in Willy's Wonderland. Wasn't that perfect? That, that was, was good. That, that was, was good. right on. That may that have right been on. the best impression you've ever done, yeah. like ever, yeah. either on this show or otherwise. Yeah. So, um... I will say, though, reading, because uh, I also read The Da Vinci Code, and I will say that reading it, every time they referred to the albino, the only thing I could picture was the albino from Princess Bride. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all I could think of. <laughs> but, like, in a, like, darker, like, like <laughs> scarier version. <laughs> the pit of despair. <clears throat> the pit of despair. Like, that's all I could think of. And this guy's, like, self-flagellating every time he does something wrong. Like, ugh. Like, that's that's the best. Um, See, I was thinking uh, there were two, and one of them is going to get brought up later on. Uh, One is uh, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, and I won't go into it now because, like I said, it gets brought up in the interview, and we do talk a little bit about it uh, and why... Uh, there's such a uh, uh, why it's a little bit controversial. Um, I actually had to read this and you know write reports and stuff about it. We discussed it at length in one of my criminal justice classes in college. Uh, but the other one would be Helter Skelter, which I've mentioned on this and other shows, like when we talk about like our introductions to horror and like stuff that we read as kids, where I was. Uh, trying to read this, I was at 16, and this was my dad's book. He had Helter Skelter, and I wanted to read it, but he uh, he forbade me to read that book. And I get it, especially after reading it, because it's like, yeah, I can read Stephen King and, and Dean Koontz and all this stuff all day long, but that's imaginary. This was real, and some of the stuff that happens, like... You know, if you're not familiar, look up Wojtek Frakowski, like what they did to him. And he was just like a guy there. Wojtek Frakowski, 
Um, so like those are those are really like the two that I would consider like some of the some of the best that uh, you know that I'm aware of. I mean I I don't read a lot of like heist or crime novels. Like that's not like I guess you know I I didn't even think of the Da Vinci Code. Like it wasn't even something that was on my radar. But I mean after you know discussing with uh, our guest uh, i would say that their books are something that i would definitely want to delve into especially because we were sent one for free you know for the interview but i mean aside from that having read you know her most uh, her previous release that came out earlier this year uh, a cold case story which again will i was trying not to give it away well i didn't say the author's name yeah, they're gonna find know. out in a few minutes anyways um also i want to add to my list party monster uh which used to be called disco bloodbath by james st james now uh it's not your uh typical i mean it's true crime um but it's not your typical true crime novel because it's uh it's kind of like a memoir uh depicting a certain time so it was the the early 90s the cl club kid era of new york city a very uh fabulous and indulgent time um you know costumes and all-night parties and you know drugs galore alcohol you name it you know a lot of uh, celebrities got their start there uh lisa edelstein was a club kid believe it or not I can see that. Uh, you know, and obviously RuPaul, Amanda Lepore, um, Mich Michelle Visage, you know, the right-hand man or woman of RuPaul, um, you know, but it, it depicts the tale of, you know, the true tale, the true telling of Michael Alleg and his murder. Uh, well, the murder that he committed, I should say, yeah. not his murder, but the murder that he committed. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting tale, like I said, and... You know, um, it was turned into a movie called Party Monster, where Macaulay Culkin actually plays Michael Alleg, and Seth Green plays James St. James, and it's actually a really good film it's as well. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's really well done. Wilmer Valderrama. Uh, yeah, well, uh, who else is in that? The, who's the young lady? Uh, Chloe Sevigny. Chloe Sevigny. Uh, Natasha Leone is in That's it. That's who I was thinking of. Uh, Marilyn Manson, you know, before we knew he was a scumbag, was in it. Um, you really great cast. Uh, I'm trying to think of. Oh my God, Dylan McDermott is in it oh, too. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah, yeah. yeah, but it, it's just just this this crazy time where you know everyone had glitter in their eyes, literally, and you know. Uh, I, my favorite scene from that is when James St. James writes his book. And yeah. <laughs> on heroin, uh, well, he was in in a K hole and K -hole, he writes that's this what book, and then come to find out he didn't write a goddamn thing. He's thinking that he's writing because he's trying to write the great American novel, and then ends up writing uh, Disco Bloodbath as a result of everything that happens. Um, but yeah, and and the the murder of Angel, the drug dealer, uh, what happened with him? It's just it's a really sad tale at the end of the day, you know. Obviously, because somebody was murdered, um, but you know how everything. The went rat. about and how everything what was kind the rat's of, name oh I, it's, it's, ricky uh, mikey i i, I don't think the, the rat had it i think the rat had name. a name i mean they did have characters like clara the chicken and 
you know but it, anyway like that was that's really well that's actually one of my favorite books because it's just so well written and and very I interesting. I haven't read that, but the movie is phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, absolutely see it because it's it's incredible and it's so well done. And Macaulay Culkin is just so good, as is Seth Green. Like the two of them together, like just fantastic. You know, two of the the you know uh, more well known child actors at the time. I mean. They at in their time when they were uh, yeah, both I was kids. Say, not not at the time they weren't no, children when no, they, they were weren't filming. kids. But you know, you know, you get Seth Green in in it, and you know, uh, amazing stories and a bunch. I mean, of other I have stuff. no idea what Macaulay Culkin was in. So oh, he was in uh, he was in The Good Son, yes, with, yeah. with uh, Frodo. That's what and Frodo was in uh, Back to the Future too, and I don't think anything else. Yeah, I don't think too, either one of them. Bad. I know Macaulay Culkin they has some. They could have had great careers. Yeah, he had some. Uh, he has some famous brothers. Uh, his brothers in a Volkswagen commercial with Paul Giamatti. Oh, Kieran. I don't know, Kieran or what's the other one? Rory. 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 Calhoun? Yes. Rory, who played uh, Fuller in uh, some movie about some kid being by himself at Christmas. I think it was called Year Without a Santa Claus. I think he was also in that. Um he was in a Van Damme movie too. Well, he was with in Patricia that, Arquette. He was in that film about I forget what it was called, but it was about the band Mayhem. Oh, um, oh, um, Chaos something. Fuck. Oh, the Lords of Chaos. Lords of Chaos. Yes. Lords yes. of Chaos. Yes. Which, if you that's, haven't seen, that's fucking good too. That is. That's pre- a that good true crime pretty. movie. Well done. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if we're talking film, because we were talking books, books but yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're just well, I'm sure there's a novelization film, of it. I mean, uh, there's you know, I, I kind of love when things are turned into like a film or you know, an HBO miniseries or something because I um don't really read all that much. Uh, <laughs> like, we just don't like, have time. Full disclosure, I don't really read all that much. Yeah. I, I try and I fail, but I, 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 I don't. I'm so, still working you know, on... When... I started Game of Thrones in 2014, and it took me two years to finish the first book. I had to restart it because I just... And I've been halfway through book five for two years. Well, and, and to be completely transparent uh sometimes like i mean i don't follow when books come out and stuff like that so sometimes i don't even realize something was a book until it you know becomes a tv show and my thing is i keep reading the same stuff over and over again kind of like you know when you go back to your your favorite you know tv shows or or it's your comfort movies yeah so we want to hear from you folks let us know what some of your favorite true crime uh or you know fictionalized crime novels are and uh, let us know. Throw down Thursday podcast at gmail.com. Do you want to throw this out? Uh, there's this YouTuber that I follow. Her name is Bailey Sarian. Uh, if you are into true crime, definitely follow her. She has such a really interesting approach. Uh, she's the one who does the, the makeup. murder, mystery, and makeup Mondays. Yes. And she uh, always avoid alliteration. She um, just sits down and does her makeup and talks about a true crime story that's been heavy on her. 
noggin. And uh, I'm sure it's that's interesting because she does a show. lot of research. She does a lot of research, and she has a way of presenting it in a lighthearted way. So for those of you who maybe aren't into all the blood and gore, uh, she doesn't. I mean, she'll she'll give discl- you know disclaimers as to what she's going to be talking about. She puts the fun in functioning psychopaths. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, she'll give disclaimers and stuff. Um, you know, and she tries to be uh, respectful you know, in regards to the victims and and what happened and stuff. Uh, but she has a very interesting approach to things. This and is I, the story I of Larry, the murder burglar. Really, you know, I find her really entertaining. She's adorable. Um, it's almost like having just, you know, sitting down and doing your makeup and, and having a chat with your, you know, best gal pal. And you, know, you just happen to be talking about true crime. Totes besties. Uh, but like I said, she has a way of uh, giving you the information in a rather thorough manner because she does. I've do heard her some homework. of the things that you've done. Like, like yeah, she, she's she really, really good. does her homework, uh, but she has a way of kind of editing it a little bit. So, you know, her delivery isn't as harsh as some of the uh, events that actually took yeah, place. Yeah, she clearly does a good and, job. And, um, you know, kind of related, she recently started a new podcast called Dark History, and it has to do with the uh, parts of, of U.S. history that are omitted from our history books. So uh, her most recent episode was about the Triangle uh, Shirtwaist Factory fire in the early 1900s and this was like you know the workforce before unions before you know better working conditions how 20,000 women who worked in these you know fabric clothing factories uh, uh, striked in New York City at the time and you know were trying to uh, demand better working conditions including more safer uh, working environments and they failed to produce that and one of the buildings caught on fire and I believe it was 146 women lost their lives and most of them were immigrants because that's where you know the the, the factories are where they could pretty much the only place they could find jobs at the yeah. time um, I believe her episode I think it was last week was on the trail of tears mm-hmm. you know which is something that really isn't talked about in US history anymore and uh, it's it's interesting she you know delves into these controversial or what could be depicted as controversial issues she talks about racism and you know some of our um, she did this whole episode on Andrew Jackson and if you uh, don't know who Andrew Jackson Jackson is he's more than just the face on the $20 bill and he does not deserve to be there so she's very oh, interesting he's a scumbag. yeah yeah and, and and really she kind of you know because her episodes are about an hour long uh, she really only scratched the surface because you know he's he's just such a terrible terrible person but yet he's you know heralded as one of the you know grandfathers of this country you yeah. know and and it's a it's a whole thing Thing. So anyways, kind of, you know, diverging a little bit from true crime, uh, these are things that happened in U.S. history that could be considered criminal. But uh, anyways, so I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to introduce you to our guest who just happens to be the great author, Stephanie Kane. Yeah. So we'll be right back. 
Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. At Strong-Willed Sports Memorabilia and More, our mission is to raise as much money and awareness for pediatric cancer research as possible through the giving away of authenticated, autographed sports memorabilia and more. All proceeds from our games will be donated to various pediatric cancer foundations, with the majority going to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Jimmy Fund. Our mission to give back began when Craig and Kara's son William was diagnosed with a stage 4 Wilms tumor, and his courage to fight and overcome his cancer ultimately led to the start of the hashtag Strong-Willed Movement. For more information on how to donate and support this great cause, please visit the hashtag Strongwilled Sports Memorabilia and More Facebook group. And we are back. And as promised, we have a very special guest for you. Uh, you might remember her from episode 244. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the show, uh, Stephanie Kane. Stephanie, how are you today? Great. How are you? Oh, we're doing all right. Uh, and most importantly, how are your cats? Yes. Oh, the, well, the doors are shut, so you will not see the cats. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Uh, my, my husband has spirited one away and the other is in his man cave. Yeah, <laughs> that works. Now the cat's man cave or your husband's? No, the cat's man cave. Okay, that's why I wanted to I wanted to make sure that we we got that uh, straightened out. Now, yeah. how has the weather been for you? Because we've been dealing with like today's like super muggy and like seventies, but it's been like high nineties approaching a hundred for the past week when we aren't having tornadoes and hurricanes. Well, well, welcome to the world of, of tornadoes. You know, that's, that's supposed to be Colorado's specialty, along with forest fires. So mm -hmm. we, we've had a very hot, smoky fire, uh, summer. We're getting tons of smoke from the West Coast. Mm -hmm. The air has been very poor, and, and it's been sweltering. Yeah, so, see, and that's not something I associate Colorado with. I mean, you know, it's like pine trees and skiing and, and, and tea yeah. Excavations. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that doesn't sound pleasant. I don't I don't like that either. But yeah, we generally don't get tornadoes and we don't get full on hurricanes. But, you know, last Thursday was a, 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 a tornado warning. I woke up to see a, a message on my phone like seek shelter now. Oh, wow. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. That's something we usually get in Massachusetts, so a little, then, uh, little alarming. And then over the weekend was uh, Hurricane Henri, 
which, you know, that was Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then Tuesday was back to the tornadoes. Crazy. Then, yeah, yeah, that was e- fun. Yeah. Eagerly, eagerly anticipating fall. <laughs> I'm just, I just, you know, I don't want to see any more tornadoes because I'm afraid someone will drop a house on my wife and steal. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephanie, you are back with us today because you are promoting your new book that I'm holding up that people can't see because this is audio, uh, <laughs> Object Lessons. And this is, uh, it's a fairly short read. Uh, it's about 200 pages. But as I have always said, it is not the quantity, it is the quality. Because, you know, I've read stuff by Stephen King that, you know, it's 130 pages. And it's like, this is describing three minutes of action. <laughs> That's way too much like gerald's game 150 pages for five minutes of stuff that's gone on it's like that's far too much so this is part of your uh your series of uh lily sparks books and so my first question for you is uh as we've mentioned you have uh you've written multiple books uh on on various aspects of crime true crime and and uh and otherwise so what was your inspiration for this particular story well um object lessons was inspired by a fascinating woman an eccentric heiress named Frances glessner lee so lee was born in chicago in 1878 she her family made its money from uh international harvester farming equipment. And Lee had a brilliant mind and she wanted to become a nurse or a doctor, but her parents were very old school. They refused to send her to college and they forced her into a miserable society marriage instead. So Lee fled the marriage, went back, fled again. I think it you know, it took her husband 14 years to grant her a divorce. So she was, she was very thwarted. Um, her fascination with crime was inspired by a Harvard classmate of her brother's. Of course, her parents sent her brother to Harvard, mm. but, you know, tutored her at home. Anyway, um, her fascination uh, was inspired by this dashing guy named George Burgess McGrath. McGrath was a medical pathologist. And he regaled Lee with true stories of crimes that he had investigated. So he told her that lots of cases were lost because of things that detectives overlooked in crime scenes. And inspired by McGrath, Lee, in her late 50s, finally came into her own. She found her purpose in life. And it was creating miniature dioramas of gory crime scenes. And by miniature, I mean, you know, they were built to like a dollhouse scale, scale Mm. of one inch to a foot. Um, And she did it to to use these these dioramas as vehicles to train cops to, to do a better job processing crime scenes. So they had a real purpose. In the 1940s, she designed 18 of them and they came complete with tiny corpses. Uh, she drafted witness statements and, and she salted them with these tantalizing clues that sometimes led nowhere. 
But the thing about her dioramas that is so compelling is that every single thing in them worked. Window shades you could pull up and down. Doors had latches and hinges and keys that actually worked. She, had a, she has a coffee pot in one diorama that has a strainer and real coffee grounds. So like three years ago, her dioramas went on display for the first time at the Renwick Gallery, which is part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I went there with my husband. And of course, you know, we were the first in line. But within moments, the place was deluged with, you know, these groups of school kids and these, these elderly, you know, these retired cops, you know, with their grandmotherly looking wives and their grandchildren. They're going around the dioramas and saying, oh, see that little smudge? That was arson. That's the clue. And I mean, people just could not get enough of them. So, you know, if they ever go on uh, tour again, I mean, they're still used to train cops, believe it or not. But if they ever go on tour again, don't miss them. So that, that was, she was one of the inspirations. The other thing that inspired me was the psychology of miniatures. Why do they fascinate us? Think of a snow globe for a second. It's a world within a world. And when you look inside, you feel like you're seeing the entire universe at once. And just holding the world in your hand gives you this incredible sense of power because you can shake that globe and make it snow. You know, um, a model train set makes a boy the master of the universe. You know, why do grown men put on engineers caps and fill their basements, you know, with, with tracks and switching switches and, and train stations and all that. It's, it's an incredible sense of power. Um, for girls, most many girls, the ultimate miniature is the dollhouse. Now, I personally never had one, but I did have a miniature battery-powered oven that came with tiny baking <laughs> tins and boxes of cake mix. And of course, the cake came out tasting terrible. But, but that wasn't the point. You know, the, the thrill was imagining that I was a real baker mm -hmm. in a life-size kitchen turning out fantastic cakes. So because miniatures evoke this heady sense of power and control, conjuring up a killer for object lessons, it wasn't such a leap to make him or her be fascinated and triggered by tiny crime scene dioramas like Francis Glessner Lee's. So in object lessons, the question is, can little crimes inspire big ones? The story opens with this husband and wife forensic team from Washington, DC, Adam and Eve Castle, um, bringing their own set of crime scene dioramas to Denver to train local cops. And a string of baffling life-size murders follows. So is the killer using the dioramas as roadmaps? or targeting victims on what their houses say about them. And of course, you know, when my heroine Lily enters the case, she gets pulled into the orbit of a killer intent on going from master of a tiny universe to playing God. So that's how I came up with object lessons. 
you know, I like the darker psychology, of course, that's just where my head is. And I, I just had tremendous fun writing it because I had to design dioramas, you know, to be building blocks of the plot. And I didn't, of course, build them like Francis Glessner Lee did, but I had to come up with them and, and furnish them and figure out what each diorama might mean about the victim, you know, inside, and then how it might play out in, in, a, in a real life-sized sort of counterpart house with real victims. And so that's how the story came about. So what kind of research did you have to do in order to create this book? Because obviously we know that, you know, you've written other novels before. Um, you have firsthand experience that can be read in a cold case story. So what kind of research did you have to do to uh, put yourself in the shoes of Lily Sparks and create this universe? Because Lily Sparks is a, is a continuing uh, heroine yeah. that yes. you've had in multiple stories. Yes, she's a paintings conservator, and um, she too was inspired by a real person. I, I always get my inspiration from life. It's just life is just so much more interesting than anything I can make up. Um, so that's always my starting point. And with Lily Sparks, she is a paintings conservator, and she has a so-called perfect eye. She was trained from the time she was a child. To, to pick up on tiny little details and see patterns. And of course that informs her work as a conservator because that's very, very painstaking and detail oriented. But it, it also is, you know, what makes her unusual as a, as a detective. Um, and she was inspired by a real person, an art historian named Amy Herman, who has written this great book called Visual Intelligence. And Herman takes cops, lawyers, FBI agents, medical students to museums. And she trains them to be more observant by having them examine paintings. So that was how I came up with Lily Sparks, the paintings conservator with the so-called perfect eye. And all of Lily's books, the theme is really the relationship between art and crime. And she's not, none of my Lily stories have, are, you know, about heists or somebody stealing a painting from the wall. There's always a darker psychology at work because the passions that drive both art and crime and how they intersect, they intersect in, in, in really interesting ways. For instance, in A Perfect Eye, which is the first book in this series, there is... Um, I don't want to give it too much away, but, but the killer is a forger. And what drives forgers for the most part, or at least the most interesting ones, is not money. It's usually to prove the larger world wrong. Forgers, at least art forgers, the interesting ones, are ones who are failed artists. And so they copy and hold out their, you know, they, they, they commit forgeries because the art world has spurned them. So there's this thrill in proving the art world wrong, in, in, in conning the art world. And that's the kind of psychology that I like, I like to deal with. So, so that's how Lily Sparks came about. And the research that I did, you know, for the character was I, I read 
everything I could find about Amy Herman. And, you know, I, I, I also did just a ton. I knew nothing about art except, you know, liking to go to museums and, you know, enjoying seeing paintings and stuff. I never took an art appreciation course or anything in college. So I had to like start out from scratch learning about art. And I also had to learn about the museum world. And I had to learn, you know, what art conservators do, you know, which means you have to learn something about artistic technique. So that was, that was a huge amount of research just to write the first one. And then once I had Lily up and running, you know, I mean, art is in every book. That's sort of the engine that makes the story go. Um, but, you know, the, the, re the huge amount of research was just kind of cracking the art and museum world. And luckily, I, I'm in a swimming class, and I, I struck up a conversation one day with another um, person in the class, and he, he was a curator at an art museum. Oh, wow. And yes, that, that was a real stroke yeah. of luck. And he, he was just incredibly generous in giving me his insights. He introduced me to um, conservators at his museum. I toured their studios. I peppered them with tons of questions. And so I, I, I got my foot in the door that way. Um, and so the, you know, the Lily Sparks books have, you know, some inside stuff about the art world and the museum world that, that I certainly would never know about. Like, for instance, you know, one thing that drives conservatives, conservators crazy is how close people stand to the paintings. Because when they talk, they spit or they sneeze or they cough. So, you know, one conservator said, what, you know, the thing that drives her the most crazy is how people, how close people get to the art. And, but on the other hand, the, the thing about being a conservator, talk about power, they have the power to not just get close to the work, but to touch it. So, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that, that inspired, you know, Lily Spark. So, so most of, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, Ashes, oh, but, fine. you know, the, 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 the main research that, that went into object lessons was all of the background of the art world, you know, that I've, that I've been learning about since I started writing those books. As far as object lessons goes, I just read everything I could find about Francis Glessner Lee, and I, I was lucky enough to be able to go and physically see her dioramas at the Renwick Gallery. And I mean, you could, within 20 minutes that we were there, I, I could barely get close enough to the dioramas to look at them because they were just thronged. And that gets back to that fascination with miniatures. And so I also did some research into the psychology of miniatures and, and why it is that they enthrall us. So, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, you touched on in your, your synopsis of the book is, you know, you know, Lily Sparks discerns connections between them and the real murders, which draw her into the orbit of a killer intent on going from master of a tiny universe to playing God, which is exactly what you said. And one of the things that struck me about, you know, someone recreating, uh, you know, murders based on, you know, like different, you know, not just uh, like dioramas, but, you know, I've, I've seen stories where, you know, people are recreating works of art and stuff like that uh, in gruesome fashion. But it's the like God complex of the serial killer, you know, where it's, 
you're, you know, you have these miniatures and you are literally like, you know, the, like you said, the master of whatever, whatever is going on in the scene. And then to be able to recreate that, you know, I think that's a, a really powerful theme that, uh, would, uh, would definitely drive the plot of a, a type of this type of story. And I find that to be fascinating because it's, it's the literal and the, uh, you know, the figurative, like, yeah, I, I have these things, like I'm playing with my action figures and doing whatever I want. Like, you know, yeah, Batman can beat the Hulk. That's fine. You know, like, you know, you'd start yeah. to the kid, but then you, you branch it out into, I saw this and I'm going to recreate it. I'm going to make it, make this happen because I am the master of my domain. Like I control what's going on. So I think that's a fascinating aspect of the psychology. It was sure fun to write. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure. So follow up to the, the Lily Sparks thing, how much of yourself and your uh, experiences go into your uh, your protagonists, uh, your your main characters like Lily Sparks or, say, uh, Jackie Flowers. Like, how much of yourself and your experiences do you kind of project onto those characters? Well, Jackie Flowers was a huge projection. Um, she was my first series heroine, and she is a dyslexic criminal defense lawyer who is a better lawyer because of her difficulties reading. And first, I should say that she was inspired, again, by a real person, a young relative of mine who has dyslexia. And from, when he, from the time he was a small child, I, I watched, you know, the education system just batter him. And, you know, there's a happy ending to his story. He ended up, you know, being a very successful person and, and you know, learning to read and, and being very successful be, because of of the special skills that he had that had nothing to do with whether he could read words on a page. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when I got, I had been a corporate lawyer at a large law firm. And at a certain, after I made partner, I, I had some epiphany that, ah, you know, this is meaningless. And I, I went and I, I, I ended up working for a criminal defense lawyer and, and started from the, literally from the ground up at, 15 bucks an hour. He threw me headfirst into the courtroom and I had to function. And, you know, it was, it was very liberating. Um, so I, when I came up with um, Jackie Flowers, I had the, this sort of feeling that, you know, maybe I could have been a better lawyer if what, what I had always thought was my strong suit was my ability to read, you know, analyze stuff, you know, on the page, all that stuff. And I thought, but, you know, maybe you could be a better lawyer if you took that away. You know, what kind of lawyer might I have been? Maybe I could have been a better lawyer if, if that hadn't been my strong suit, you know? So that, that was, and, and I also wanted to exercise my corporate demons by, you know, creating a character that, my law firm would never have hired, you know? But anyway, so that, that was what was behind Jackie Flowers. So that was, even though I do not have dyslexia and I spent a relatively short period of my legal career doing criminal defense work or courtroom work, 
she was kind of autobiographical. She was sort of the alternate me that I imagined who could be a much better lawyer than I ever actually was by taking away what I always thought was my strength. So she was pretty autobiographical. Then when I went into the, um, into uh, Lily Sparks, I, I departed from the legal world, which was a real risk for me because I understood the legal world. I'd been in it for decades. Right, um, right what you know. Yeah, but I wanted to just get out of that and, and, and go into a, enter a different world. And I, I, under, I underestimated how, how much work it would be to try to make you know, a character in the art world realistic when mm -hmm. I had absolutely you know, no grounding in that. But, so it was a lot of work, but it was also very rewarding. And I guess what is autobiographical about Lily for me is that in the, in the first Lily Sparks book, it's called A Perfect Eye, it really goes into her relationship with her father. She was raised by a, a widowed father. Her mother died when she was five. And her father was this, a mailman, but he had this just like exacting kind of discipline. He would take her on walks when she, to train her eye. When she was a little child, he'd take her on walks and he'd ask her, you know, to describe everything she saw. And then, you know, they'd walk another block and then he'd ask her to recount what she had seen at the beginning of the walk. And then the next day they'd go on a walk again and he would say, what has changed from yesterday? Maybe there'd be a little dog's chew toy that was on the grass yesterday and it's not there today. You know, just all, and, and she, she just, he, he made it a game. It wasn't like he was abusing her or anything. Mm. But he, you know, he made it a game and it became kind of how they bonded. And it also became how she honed her, her eye. Um, and I too grew up with a father who was very, very disciplined and demanding. He wasn't a mailman and he didn't, I had a mother too. He wasn't widowed. But I had a, you know, the primary relationship that I had growing up was with my father who I spent a lot of time with and we took, I grew up in New York City and we took walks. I mean, you would take a subway to get to the, some of the places that we walked to. I, I look back on some of what we did and I wonder, my God, you know, how did we walk from, you know, Brooklyn Heights all the way to the dentist, way out in, you know, <laughs> But we did. Why are we and, in New Jersey? Yes, you know, and, and in fact, you know, we, as he, he's been dead for, you know, five or about eight years now, I guess. But, but one of the, before we, we moved him from the East Coast to Denver, he was widowed by then, and so he could be close to us. But, but I remember, like, the last few times I was in New York with him, what did we do? We took these insane walks. <laughs> so... So that, you know, to that extent, Lily is autobiographical. Um, and, you know, I mean, my God, he just, he was so demanding, you know, he told me to, you know, to walk from that, with the outside of my foot rolling it. I mean, I, I look back and I think, you know, <laughs> and my so mother I, thought I'm it was nice. Walking, but, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, how much more is it? One foot in front of the other? Like. Yeah. Yeah, but he You're doing it wrong. Yeah, he had a way, you know, and, and you know, I, I mean, I see it in myself all the time now and I, I don't mind it, you know, but 
is kind of crazy. And anyway, that that became an inspiration for Lily Sparks. Now, I do have one more follow up on that. Now, one thing that we did not cover, and we talked a little bit about this off air that we didn't cover the last time uh, when you were on is you are a second degree black belt and you ran your own karate studio. How much of that gets put into your, uh, your, your protagonists? Absolutely none. None. No action stars. No, uh, like, nope. Oh, there's the bad guy. I'll get him. Like, and, and I think that's because when I was doing karate, I, I took it, it, it wasn't, I guess it was a discipline, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I sort of channeled some perfectionism into it. I had some very good teachers who, who mm-hmm. were really, really into the technique. And, you know, once I stopped doing it, when I went to law school, I just couldn't, you know, I didn't want to do it sloppily. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't have the, the discipline anymore to, to keep practicing it. So I just kind of, I put that whole part of my life behind me. And I mean, now I can, I swim, you know, uh, but I can, I can barely touch the floor. I mean, I'm not flexible anymore. I can't, I can't begin to do any of the stuff that I did then. And the thought of doing it badly, mm. you know, it just. If you're going to do it, do it right, you know, get the yeah, most. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get you. Because yeah. I, know, I know what it looks like to do it right. You know, <laughs> I wasn't sure on the timeline when that happened, because, you know, when the, in your meet the author section of the, uh, uh Oh, we just lost her. Well, I'll continue. Anyways, I was going to say when in the meet the author section, Oh, here, I think she's back I think she got bounced out. After she has to connect her microphone. Yeah. This is the thing with Streamyard Sometimes it's a little, uh, it's a little wacky, and it it'll uh, bounce you out. Adventures in podcasting never yeah. a dull moment. <laughs> but uh, I was, you know, uh, yeah. Here we go. Here Sorry we go. about that. Well, it it's happens. Okay. We uh, we were able to keep the conversation going. Uh, but as I say, in your uh, your your little press kit here, it just you know it, it lists a few things, but it doesn't have like a chronological order because I wasn't like it's like oh did she do karate like as a kid did she do karate now like. So I was just I was just curious about that because it's like, oh, she never told us she was a ninja. <laughs> we talked about twenties, but we didn't talk about, you know, karate and stuff. But uh, I I just thought that was kind of cool. And it's like, you know, if that's one of those things, like you said, you know, um, some some of the the aspects of your characters are autobiographical, and I think that's true for any author. Um, you know, there you put a little bit of yourself in because it's like, how would I react to the situation or you know, whatever happens to be, you know, the, the motivation behind it is I didn't know if it's like, Oh, I'm involved in all these crimes and there's murderers and stuff. It's like, Oh, I better learn how to do karate. So in case (laughs) I can, you know, give them a hip toss or something. Uh, Ashley, I know you have more stuff to say. Yeah. So I have a question about your writing style. Uh, sometimes when you open up a, either a, a true crime novel or, uh, you know, uh, just a, a crime novel in general, uh, you're kind of 
faced with a bunch of words that like it reads like a really dossier like yeah you 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 it's difficult to read sometimes you know you're faced with a bunch of words that you don't know how to pronounce that you've never seen before a lot of times people will jurisprudence use very what the official hell? <laughs> to make you know like i'm smart uh but there is such an enticing ease to your writing mm. is that intentional like for for to, to make it uh, appealing to all readers I am so, I'm just thrilled that you feel that way about my writing because I, I, I always worry that it's not that way. Um, I try to, um, I think I've got a good ear for dialogue I, because I, I yeah. listen a lot, you know, and then what I do is I, I take out extra words. So I, I try to make it short and sweet, hmm. but I, I think, you know, I, I tend to make my plots overly complicated. And then I've got to go back and, and get to what the root of it is and simplify it so that there isn't, I'm always trying to carve away extraneous stuff, you know? Which I think is good. And, you know, that yeah. kind of touches on what I was saying earlier, where you don't need, like, you could take any, like, true crime story, like, say, Helter Skelter is, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. But when you, you know, for lack of a better term, trim away the fat, like you're saying, you get a clear, concise, straight to the point story, which is why, you know, you can tell an entire narrative in 200 pages. And as someone who tries to tell, you know, like in my own writing, I try to be as concise as possible. Like, you know, I've done flash fiction, which is 500 words, two sentence stories. Like the quicker you can tell a narrative and get to the point, as long as you're, you know, and like what you do, you get your your readers invested in the characters. You don't have to do all this extra extra stuff. It's not like one of these uh, John Grisham crime thrillers, you know, like the first title that pops into my head is The King of Torts. Like, who the hell knows what tort law is? You know, a casual <laughs> reader? No. You know, like someone's like, oh, John Grisham. I've heard that name. I'm going to read The King of Torts. Like, oh, is this about tortoises or baked goods? Like, what? Is <laughs> it? And it's... <laughs> Like yours isn't like that. Yours is like this is what these people do. This is who they are. Well, and, and this is why way, they're here, right? And you have a way of when you do introduce something to give a very concise explanation as to not derail the story, mm -hmm. but to give the reader like this is what this is. You're just adding. Layers. Now we're moving forward, right? It's like and making a sandwich. Like it's like oh, you know, this is what we have. We have some bread. Well, here's some here's some mayo and like here's some lettuce and here's a tomato and you're just adding on to the overall thing you're not and you don't take anything away and it's like at the end you have this whole complete sandwich you know with some chips on the side you know and as for for me personally as as someone who works in the uh in the science industry having to read you know scientific articles Technical. day in and day out and having to read all of this jargon and then you know stuff it's just like you know coming home and curling up with a book that i can just you know easily read and i don't have to sit there and be like okay how do you pronounce this how let me sound it out you know something that i can just uh just kind of devour nucleotides uh, <laughs> it's very it's very welcoming and I, I i appreciate that in your writing style well i am totally thrilled to hear that because if i have achieved that it's only because people have beaten me on the head <laughs> time after time after time for not doing that. I had to learn it the hard way. It didn't come naturally. Well, you know? 
I was going to say, like, like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Like, you know, I, I just, I submitted a story for uh, an anthology last year and I'm like, Oh, I haven't written anything. I'll just use this old story. Like, that'll be good enough. I started reading it. I'm like, I thought this was good at some point. Like, this is horrendous. <laughs> so as you're, as you progress, you know, like that's, you know, you've written lots of books. So, you know, I'm sure you could look back at your, you know, one of your first books or like with us, we look back at our early podcast and it's like, oh, that's terrible. Like, it's like, we thought we were good. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you're going to look back at your first book and be like, oh, what a pile of shit this was. But you'd be like, oh, like I can see where I have improved from, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I can see how much better I have gotten now. And I can't wait to write my next one because I know that's going to be even better. If only. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, it's I, hard I never, to... You know, back, back, you know, not so long ago when we, when there were bookstore readings, you know, when you launched a book, mm -hmm. you went to the books. I never read aloud from my books because really? once they're in print, I don't open them again. I, I, because I can't stand the thought of opening it and seeing, gosh, you know, I could have made this clearer. What, what did I, what does that mean? And you know, but once it, once it's in side covers, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to a, to the readers because I can't change it anymore. And that drives me nuts. So I don't ever look at them. I, I just don't look at them. That's an interesting way of, of I mean, approaching that's a, it. That's kind of the sign of an artist, though. A true artist is never <laughs> fully satisfied with their work. I mean, I, I, yeah. I can look at it as, you know, I, I totally get where you're coming from on that. But I could also look at it, you know, playing devil's advocate on the other side, you know, like what I was just saying. It's like, oh, man, I can't believe I, I didn't make this clear enough or I should have described this better. That's a lesson that I'm going to carry with me into the next into the next one. So I can see both sides of that. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to look at that because I don't want to get, you know, down on myself, but. Well, you know, I'll tell you, you know, that the, the uh, Jackie Flowers books are almost exactly twice as long as the Lily Sparks books. S I mean, same, same amount of story, I think. It just took me twice as long to tell it. I mean, it, I think that all depends uh, also on you know, on the, on the, uh, the subject matter, like there's, you know, again, I always use Stephen King as a, as a kind of a barometer because he can be very concise, but at the same time, like I said about Gerald's game is, you know, there's a 150 pages describing five minutes of action. You know, it's like, that's way too much. And it's not like anything crazy happened. It's like, Oh no. Uh, my husband and I were getting intimate. He had a heart attack now I'm chained to this bed with no one to help me. That's 150 pages. And it's like, wow. that doesn't need to be 150 pages. Well, my, you know, my well, favorite book of his was the, was the stand because that, that just, that had so much story, you know? Right. But none of it Every, was yeah, superfluous. It was, yeah, exactly. It, and it was just a magnificent, it. huge story. Yeah. I, I love the stand. I've read it, I don't know, four or five times. Yeah. I, it's it, my it's one of those, like, you need to have as as much as there is in it, because it's like 1,100, almost 1,200 pages, uh, as much as what's in it, um, 
like y- there's really nothing you can take out. I guess there was yeah. a version where it was like 500 pages shorter and it was just like, I can't imagine what 500 pages you're going to take out of that story to make it better. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with it. I mean, I suppose you could take out some of like the Mike Hanlon dairy interlude stuff, <laughs> you know, where they give you a little bit of history and he's talking about the book that he's planning on writing. Like, I suppose maybe you could take some of that out and tell it in a different way, but you know, then you have uh, Eyes of the Dragon, because I'm a big fan of the, the Dark Tower series. And so every time I read that, you get to book four and they're in the like the world of the stand. So I take a pause and it's like, oh, let me take a quick break and read the stand. <laughs> how long the Dark Tower series is. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I suppose there's some stuff in there that could be cut out, but that also took like 40 years to write. So so who are some of your favorite authors who do you like to curl up and and read after a hard day i hate to say this but i really like nonfiction. okay there's nothing and, wrong with and, and, and i also like really well written true crime there's a guy named paul french it. yeah you never <laughs> guess it this there's a guy named paul french who wrote this i think it's called midnight in peking and it's this fantastic story of a true murder that took place in Peking right as the Japanese were invading China in World War II. And it's, it's just, he brings it to life in, in such a fantastic way. So, and I, and I you know, I, I love Truman Capote's In True Blood. I mean, In True Blood. Cold blood. In cold blood. Um, and, you know, so really well-written true crime just really gets me because there's there's nothing more fascinating than what actually happens. So you know? I have a question about In Cold Blood for you because I, I literally, as you were talking about that, I literally wrote down In Cold Blood and <laughs> underlined it twice right before you said it because I think this is an example of... Um, an artist getting too close to his subjects. Yeah, I know. It's very, very controversial what he did. Yeah. For you folks know. unaware, he formed, a, a during the interview process and everything with the, the two guys who committed the crimes, he formed a friendship with one of them. And if you read the, uh, if you read the, um, the, the book, you will get a uh <laughs> just throw the phone out the <laughs> door. <laughs> that was maybe the funniest thing I've ever had. had I wish we were recording the video right now. <laughs> like the phone was going up. She ran over, grabbed the phone, threw it out the door, and closed the door. That was the best thing ever. Uh, but but yeah so anyways the uh the the whole story is like if you read the book it almost seems like there's the one guy who did everything and the other guy was just kind of along for the ride no he's just an innocent bystander when like by all accounts they were both equally culpable but because he had formed this friendship it was like yeah but you know what this guy he was there but he's not a bad guy like he gives to charity he calls his mother on mother's day oh he's such a good guy but the other guy oh what a jerk so in your opinion do you think something like that when you're trying to write true crime do you think that 
is kind of a, a blemish on the credibility of the writer because you're not telling the story the way it's supposed to be told. You're letting your personal biases kind of influence how you're reporting on this, this event. I don't think you can ever be objective. Okay. You know, there, there's, this is like kind of way off the topic, but, but what you're no, saying no. reminds me of this. You know, Alphonse Bertillon, he was the, the French um, criminalist who originated the photos of corpses in Belle Epoque, Paris, late uh, 18th, 19th century Paris. In fact, that is the cover of my book, one of his photos. Oh, and really? I thought yes. it looked familiar. Yeah. And he, you know, I've done a lot of research on him. And he, he was, you know, he, he was the first one to, to come up with protocols for, for scientifically doing the mug shots. And in fact, his protocols for mug shots are used, still used today in passport photos mm. and IDs, you know, calibrating the camera in a certain way and getting certain angles and stuff. So he had all these trappings of, of being objective. But actually, it turns out that what he did was sometimes he moved the corpse before taking the photograph. Sometimes he moved a little prop, you know, a little thing that was in the picture, you know, just to make it a little clearer. So I think, you know, when we talk about objectivity and art or objectivity in journalism, you're always shaping the product for, for some reason, whether it's conscious or not. Uh, in Bertillon's case, um, when he, um, when his work, when he was doing his work in the late 19th century, uh, there was a tremendous rate of acquittals. Uh, France had the jury system and uh, after the French Revolution. And so juries were acquitting people right and left. So Bertillon would subtly change what was change what he was photographing in order to encourage juries to convict. So even, you know, one of the fathers of, of you know, criminology and crime scene stuff Forensics. was suddenly doing stuff, you know, and yet he, you know, he, his calling card was, you know, the objectivity of his, you know, the way he calibrated his camera it was so that everything would be objective, you know, and it could be used as evidence in court. But, you know, no photographer is, is objective when they're taking a picture. They're always subtly framing it to, to create mm -hmm. a certain effect. Using and different I, tools, different yeah. lenses. And yeah. I think journalists do that, you know, and, and I think the real question is, to what extent is it conscious? Yeah, because you know, Truman Capote was yeah. definitely conscious in, in what you're saying. Like, those are definitely conscious decisions that you are making to, you know, sort of frame things in a certain way to tell a specific narrative. Right. And yeah, no, I get you. Like, that's, that I did not know. And I, I always like learning new stuff about, about uh, you know, anything I can. And that's that's fascinating to hear. So, and I wouldn't say it was off the, off the topic. Like, you know, everything kind of flows into, you know, we were talking true crime and then we talk, you know, we're both thinking, you know, in, in cold blood and then, you know, like that, it flows. It's nice. You know, it's not off topic. If you were like, oh, well, this one time I had a sandwich, that would be, <laughs> that would be like way off topic. But you know, we're in the, 
it, it would depend on whether that sandwich was made in a tiny battery powered oven, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You want US toasted? All right. It's going to be three yeah, right. And it's going to taste terrible. But... Yes. I have a 12 watt light bulb that's right. powering, my, powering my oven. Right. In a week. Oh, man. No, this has been a this has been a, a, a great conversation and you know I definitely learned a lot and I'm gonna put links in the show notes for uh the ladies that you mentioned. Uh you said it was uh Francis Glessner Lee and uh Amy Herman. Yes. So I, yes. I wrote those down. So we'll put links Wonderful. in so folks wanna check out some more of, of their uh contributions. You know, obviously we'll have links to, you know, your uh, author page and uh so where do you like folks uh, interacting with you on social media? What's the best place to uh, get a hold of you or, or you know, uh, leave you a you message? Know, how much I, they like I, I am on Facebook, but, but I always respond to emails. And they can email me through my website, which is writercane.com. And I always answer emails. So I, I'm a little wary on Facebook because it's so public. Yeah, that's know? totally fine. And so if, if you want to get a real answer for me to something, just send me an email. I promise I'll get back to you. So we'll have, we'll have the links to, uh, to the, the website in the show notes as well so folks can get a hold of you. Great. So again, uh, Object Lessons comes out on October 15th. Where can people buy the book? Um, it's online. It's in hard okay. copy. I mean, it's in print and an ebook. So, Perfect. you know, the Amazon page is the best place to get it. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for uh, your time today. I know we went a little over, but, you know, the conversation was very interesting. And uh, please, you have an open invitation yeah. to come oh, back you. whenever you have something to promote. Every six months um, we'll have you. Know, you congratulations <laughs> on the new book. I, I am looking forward to reading it more as soon as we uh, finish this interview. Yeah. <laughs> I have it in my hands right now. I'm like, I cannot stop coming through it. So uh. thank you so much. It's just been a real hoot. <laughs> well, I'm sure you don't get these same questions on any other uh, no. show. No. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll wrap everything up. Okay. Are you looking to add to your collection of sports memorabilia? Trying to find that grail item to show off to your friends? Do you like to win? Then head on over to the Major Sports Drops group on Facebook. From pucks to jerseys, bats to helmets, Major Sports Drops is your place for sports memorabilia items dropped daily. Signed by today's stars as well as Hall of Famers. Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, Mike Ditka, Barry Sanders, Wade Boggs, Zdeno Chara, Odell Beckham, Lamar Jackson, Frank Thomas, and many more autographs have already been pulled. You can get in on the action for as little as $5 per spot. There are multiple drops each day, with special contests also running at various times each month as well. So join the Major Sports Drops Facebook group and get in on the action today. Greetings, weary adventurer. Do you have a taste for the exotic? Do regular snacks no longer provide the thrill ye seek? Would ye rather eat a cod piece than another boring candy bar? And it's time for ye to sink your teeth into Mythical Meats Exotic Game Sticks. Mythical Meats offers a wide variety of exotic flavors based on creatures of legend to give ye a snack experience of epic proportions. 
Like it hot? Try the Spicy Creatures Sample Pack, featuring dragon, chupacabra, and werewolf. More in the mood for something a bit milder? Try the Creatures of the Sky Sample Pack, with Pegasus, Griffin, and Phoenix. Can't decide on which one you want? Why not try the Exotic Flavor Sample Pack, featuring all ten flavors, so you can find your favorite. Go to mythicalmeats.com to see the full selection of flavors and place your order. All orders over $49 get free two-day shipping. Mythical Meats Exotic Game Snack Sticks. So good, they're legendary. are back that was a really fun episode and uh she was great on episode 244 so she was great on episode 267 so set your uh, calendars for episode 290 when she'll be back promoting her uh, next book i'm guessing i'm just saying you know it's every six months or so every every 23 episodes <laughs> so she'll be back for episode 290 um but seriously she does have an open invitation to come back and promote whatever she's working on she is such a fantastic guest and i learned a lot yes like we were both taking copious notes during this uh i have so many things that i want to look up now uh different people different things the whole crime scene diorama is just super fascinating to me so i'm very eager to learn more of that and to delve more into object lessons to see exactly what plays out yeah i mean I mean, the the whole conversation revolving around in cold blood, uh, including the uh, the phone toss. That was my favorite part. Like that <laughs> I was. Wish we had been record. I mean, because obviously I might we... like see if I can turn that into a gif. And like <laughs> we have the uh, we were recording uh, obviously just the audio, but we were using a program that does video as well. And uh, oh my god, it was the funniest thing! I, I wish we were recording the video. She was like looking like to, to see if she could hit mute or whatever, and she just funny. takes her she headphones just gave off, up and went. gets up, grabs the phone, <laughs> runs to the door, opens the door, heaves the phone down the hallway, closes the door, and like runs back over. It was the funniest goddamn thing. Like, oh it goodness. was so, oh, so good. So I might, like, get that and, like, edit down just that and then, like, email it to her. <laughs> so funny. Oh, my God. Seriously, uh, she is such an interesting person to have conversations with and so incredibly delightful and insightful. So definitely be sure to check out Object Lessons by Stephanie Kane, which will be available uh, pretty much everywhere books are sold but on October then, 15th. You can check out uh, Perfect Eye and Automat. Uh, which are her other two, uh, 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 Leslie, Leslie, Leslie Sparks, Lisa, Lisa Sparks. No, we just Lily, Lily, Lily Sparks. Jesus wow, Christ! Just, wow, sorry, temporary stroke. Ugh, uh, I'm <laughs> so tired. You know, I was think. You know what is throw? You know what was throwing me off? Lisa Leslie played for the Sparks, like. 
that's not an ADD moment. I, I know. know and that's my that's my <laughs> issue is like something all these things connect to something else. But Lisa Leslie I believe you, played for the Sparks. You see those memes, and they're supposed to be funny. Of like, you know, the mind of an ADD, ADHD no, person. No, it's a thousand and like, percent no, true. It's, it is absolutely one hundred percent true. I can attest to that because I live with that. So I get, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we're talking true crime, and I'm thinking the first basketball, the first WNBA player to dunk. Like that's where my mind went. <laughs> Lisa Leslie of the Sparks. <laughs> oh God, that's yeah. So, we have some battle results for you. We do have some battle results. So, last week, we threw down, in honor of the episode uh, discussing the Fear Street trilogy, uh, horror is a gateway drug. What or who is responsible for your introduction to horror? And you could choose from R.L. Stein, Stephen King, the show Are You Afraid of the Dark?, or other. You can choose your own adventure and let us know in the comments. And uh, both Facebook and the Twitters are in agreement that Stephen King was your first choice, your gateway, uh, your first uh, Foray encounter into horror. Into horror. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Some of you just kind of dove right in and added some stuff yeah like some of the people who uh left us comments yeah so uh tom morse jr said hellraiser was his first introduction to horror and the first to give me nightmares that is a hell of a first like foray (laughs) see what i did there (laughs) no that that that's uh i mean especially that regeneration scene which i still say is the best Practical, practical effect scene oh, I have ever seen, and I'm including fantastic. the thing. As much as I love the thing and the practical effects and that, the regeneration scene, uh, I, I'd say that's even above David Naughton's transformation into a werewolf in American Werewolf in London. Um, that, that transformation scene is fucking amazing. Author Tamworth Grice said, Edgar Allan Poe, of course. Also, scary poems and stories heard as a kid, like the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. Yes. You know, a lot of the like little uh, songs and... Nursery kind of like, rhymes. Yeah. All have something to do with something terrible. Like Ring Around the Rosy? Like, like, that's the about Rosie. the fucking Black Plague. Pocket for, they would put posies in their pockets to help with the smell, like the stench of death and decay. You know, when ashes, ashes, we all fall down, they burn their dead. Yes. You know, it's uh, it's it's crazy to think about. Like this is what, and this is what we sang while holding hands and running around. You know, skipping in a circle. Uh, and friend of the show Nicholas Angarola <laughs> said, "My actual introduction to horror, and yes, I can't read." Uh, and posted a gif of Ernest Scared Stupid, nice. which is. Fantastic. Uh, I forget about those films. You know, obviously, you know, growing up, watched all of the Ernest films. He was so just. I've never watched any of them. He was so stupid. And uh, I, yeah, Ernest Scared Stupid. That's a really good one. The only, the only uh, Jim Varney thing I have seen is him in the Beverly Hillbillies with uh, Diedrich Bader, who now is fucking Batman in the animated, in uh, the Harley Quinn animated series. Uh, And uh, I liked uh, uh, also in the episode of The Simpsons, uh, Bart Carney, where they lose their house to the the carnival workers and then make a bet 
on a, a single game of ring toss. If Homer can throw a hula hoop over the chimney, they will sign the deed over. So that's what I know Jim Varney from. Yeah. I never watch any of the earnest things. They were pretty, uh, especially as a as a child. A coward. Pretty, a, a, a kid you know, child. My brain is just like a yeah, a, a kid child. Kind of wanted to say kid. Kind of wanted to say yeah, child. Yeah, I did chud. It's a it's a kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there were silly movies to watch as I was a chud. When I was <laughs> just a little chud. Well, the sequel to that is called Chud 2, Bud the Chud. I haven't seen that, but the first one has a very, very, very young John Goodman, I think, in his first role. Really? And Daniel Stern as a priest. Daniel Stern, you'll know, is uh, uh, Marv from uh, Home Alone, which has some kid actor in it. I don't know. I forget who that was. That's called a callback. Um but yeah, it, Edgar Allan Poe is good stuff, you know, and, and even the first Simpsons Halloween special, you know, they talk about that. It's like, pff, that wasn't scary, not even for a poem. Well, it was written 150 years ago. Maybe people were easier to scare back then. Oh, yeah, like when you look at Friday the 13th Part 1, pretty tame by today's standards. That was 1989. <laughs> Quoth the raven, eat my shorts. Oh, and that... You know, being read by James Earl Jones, I did have another version that uh, I had on my computer. I think I downloaded off of fucking LimeWire, of all things. Um, read by Christopher Walken, the whole poem. And most people don't know that there is a sequel, sequel or prequel, I forget, called Lenore, who was his 13-year-old cousin with whom he was infatuated, if I remember correctly. Oh, oh. Yes. That's uh. Then there's the line in the Raven, you know, uh, uh, the the uh, utterly I s- sought to borrow from my book surcease of sorrow, sorrow uh, for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the Raven is there just to remind him of Lenore and uh, just, you know. That's why he says, take thy beak from out my heart and take my form from off my door. And, like, basically it's a, it's a poem about his grief about Lenore dying so young. But, again, if I remember correctly, that was his 13-year-old cousin with whom he was infatuated. I may be wrong on that, but I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. I know that Lenore is not someone who played for the Sparks. <laughs> I know that, um, but you know. So again, this is why when I when I bring things up on the show and I'll be like, "This is to the be- my the best of my recollection." I'm not trying to hedge my bets. I'm literally trying to remember if this is the right fact or I'm confusing and conflating two different things and adding something that doesn't match. But my weird brain kind of connects the two things. So Lily Sparks becomes Leslie Sparks because Lisa Leslie played for the Sparks. So a little bit of a, a, a peek behind the curtain as to what goes on in the in my fucking head sometimes. So when I get things wrong, like let me know. Like I'm fine with that. But like sometimes, like I think I'm remembering things correctly. Sometimes but the line, the, the wires get crossed a little. The wires bit. always get crossed a lot of it. So. Um. But yeah, you know, uh, do you got anything else? 
Well, I do have something I want to talk about. Yeah. So the other day, you took a little ride to a little place in Salem. I did. And uh, this kind of ties in with last week's episode, where we were joined by Kales from the Crypt and the Good Witch, Anna Maria. Uh, they are currently in the process of promoting their pop-up for the Crypt, which will soon be a horror-themed restaurant in Salem. And right now, they have a pop-up kitchen on, uh, I believe it's 62, 62. Wharf oh. Street. Horf. 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 Uh, Not the guy from Star Trek, Michael Dorn. No, different guy. Different Worf. Different Worf. Um, Worf art. But in, in, in Salem. <laughs> Literally on the water, on the Horf. <laughs> okay, just stop. Let me get through this, please. Uh, so he visited them the other day, and they were kind enough to make us a couple of sandwiches from their pop-up. And I strode out of there with two sandwiches. <laughs> he strode. So the sandwich that we had was called the Lori Strode, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. So in lieu of a wine this week, I am recommending a sandwich. So, the Lori Strode at the Crypt. It is eggplant marinated in a mildly hot pesto sauce with caramelized onions, roasted red peppers, arugula, sweet tomato compote, and mozzarella cheese. And get this, kids, it can also be made vegan. So, not only are they in the process of raising money to find the final resting place for the crypt so they can open up their their full, you know, uh, horror-themed restaurant that will have a home in Salem, which I think is fantastic because right now, Salem, of all places, does not have a horror-themed restaurant. So, you know, there's no spooky place for our spooky kids to go and, you know, have some delicious food. But also, one of the things I love about this is the fact that Kales from the Crypt has, dec I want to say like decades, almost two decades, maybe over two decades at this point, uh, of experience working in 18 kitchens. 18 years. Yeah, so almost two decades worth of experience working in kitchens. And she has worked every single position. And the only thing she hasn't done is own her own restaurant, which seems like it's just the, 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 the obvious next step for them. And this idea is so good. And she is in the process of you know, curating this menu to cater to everyone. So if you have certain dietary needs or different restrictions, you know, are you vegetarian? Are you vegan? You know, do you have different food allergies? She is going to make it so that you have a place that you can go. You are not going to be an afterthought and you are not going to be stuck having to eat a plate of french fries. I mean, granted, I love potatoes. So I mean, I'm not going to scoff at a plate of french fries, but, you know, it's nice to go to a place and have options, you know, to be able to be like, hey, you know, I like this. And, you know, like I said, like the Lori Strode, some of these dishes have the option of being made vegan, which, you know, is is just fantastic. So if you haven't made it out there yet, uh, it's worth the trip. Go to Salem, hit up the Crypt pop-up. Actually, go to the Crypt Facebook page. If you look in our show notes from last week, uh, we linked everything there. 
They're currently doing a pop-up test kitchen uh, a couple of days a week. For right now, it's just pre-order only. And every day they are giving you a sample of some of their wares. Yeah, each week uh, it's if, you go the to the, menu. if you go to the Kales from the Crypt uh, uh, Razzle site, you can see what... Uh, what is going to be on the menu for the week. Right. They also post it uh, mm -hmm. on the Crypt Facebook yeah, page Yeah, on the as Crypt. Well. So both of those spots. And uh, starting today, Saturday, August 28th, you can get Crypt t-shirts. T-shirts! And you can order them the same way you order food. You can order them, because I, I was just playing around like literally 10 seconds ago. Um, you can order them up to uh, size 2XL. And you can order them to pick up at the crypt the same way you would pick up your food. So you can get food and a shirt and, you know, be on your way. But let me tell you, uh, if, you if you've seen my most recent Facebook post, you already know. Uh, I'm not a sandwich person. I don't really. I mean, like, occasionally I'll eat a sandwich. It's whatever. You know, I mean, grilled cheese is not a sandwich in my book. And grilled cheese is a sandwich, but, but, it's, but it's not it's, a complicated it's not a, sandwich. But, but it's not. But, you know, I just it's just. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, this was so good. Like, the marriage of the different flavors uh, just kind of delightfully dances on your palate. It's not overly spicy, but it does have a little bit of a kick to it. And it kind of plays with that uh, spicy, sweet, savory combination oh, so that is just so good. And... I'm not going to lie. I love eggplant. I love eggplant. And, you know, I'm not going to turn down an eggplant parm, but it seems like the only thing restaurants really know how like, how to make or, or you know, with know eggplant. what to do with eggplant is to make an eggplant parm. So it's so refreshing to see eggplant on a menu and have it not be eggplant parmesan. Well, I also have to preface this. So when you got to eat the sandwich, because we I I waited for you. I did, I did think about just eating one and be like, oh, I got one sandwich for us to split, because when I got to Kaylee and Anna Maria's house, it was about three thirty, and Kaylee made the sandwiches right then and there at three thirty. So by like quarter of four, they were done. She put them in the to-go containers, put them in the bag. I hung out with Kaylee till about 5.30, then went to Silver Moon Collectibles uh, in the Witch City Mall, which if you've never been there, go there. It's amazing um, to pick up my, uh, my two McCready NECA figures. And while I was there, happened to see the Jaws uh, Toonie Terrors figure, which, of course, I had to get because it's Quint versus the Shark. So I got that. Um, and then I drove home, which took another two hours because of traffic. Um, and then by the time you got home, it was around 8. We ate the sandwiches at 8.30, so they had been made and in the container for over four hours. And they were fucking delicious. Right, like the bread wasn't soggy. Uh, it was still kind of warm. Um so unbelievably good. Like so well, it was good. Warm and because it was in my car. Well, and it what was I'm 97 saying, degrees out. Well, I mean there's there's that. Uh but what I'm saying is, you know, I ate this 4 hours after they were prepared and they were just mind-blowing. You know, so 
freaking good. Uh, I can't imagine how good it's going to be to eat it, you know, from kitchen to your Fresh, table. Like, right. So That's why I, I was considering, it's like, Jesus, she's not going to eat this until 8 o'clock. I'm like, I could have one right now, but I wasn't a jerk, and I waited for her so that we could both eat it together. Oh, it was so good. That pesto. I want everything covered in that pesto sauce. It was so freaking good. And unfortunately, like, you won't have the exact same, uh, you know, experience. You know, when you get your food, because I got to play with the dogs while I was waiting. <laughs> I got to play with the dogs, and you know, the little puppies are jumping around and being cute and walking around and like playing with their toys. And uh, their dog Stoker killed a vampire. Plush toy. And I thought that worked out really well. I was like, if anyone's going to do it, it should be Stoker. So I kept wanting to call him Harker, but I knew that was wrong. Um, but yeah, it, the crypt, I can't wait to try everything that they have. Um, I'm especially looking forward to the Quint, which is a Narragansett beer-battered fish sandwich. Because, of Just course, so it fucking yeah, is. It's so appropriate. And it looks delicious. Everything and that we've seen. Uh, I'm dying for that. Uh, Outpost 31? No, the cheesecake. Uh, the Outpost 31 is like a lava cake named after the thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, Outpost 31 is where the thing takes place. But uh, I just want to throw this out there because I'm a little proud of it. Any of the... Um, like when they post some of their pictures where you know, you know they see you know pinhead holding the sandwich or uh Bruce the shark eating the quint sandwich uh, all of those photoshops were done by me and I'm very proud of them cuz I think they came out great I really hope they use the kids menu one <laughs> because I think the kids menu one is the best fucking one I did Do you remember the kids menu one? Oh uh, is that the one with the uh, Jason With Jason <laughs> It's amazing. But yeah, definitely check out The Crypt, especially if you're going to be in Salem anytime between now and January. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, these two ladies are phenomenal human beings. And uh, like, I'm really excited to see uh, how this takes off. And you know, I can't wait to see their actual space. So uh, I think that's all I have. Uh, next week... Uh, we will be discussing uh, Brendan Fraser and uh, the his uh, mummy movies with Rachel Weisz and Oded Fair and, and Arnold Vosloo and CGI The Rock. So we'll be discussing uh, The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. Uh, we were going to do that this week, but then this uh, interview fell into our laps. So we're like, yeah, let's do this. And then next week's The Mummy. So that's all I got. Do you have anything else? So if you were listening to this today on Saturday, uh, August 28th, be sure to tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, August 29th for the live stream of the first annual Amalgamania Podcast and Entertainment Awards hosted by yours truly and this guy that's sitting right next to me. Hi. <laughs> so you can I already find... know who won. We have it all written down. I already know who won. 
so you can find the live stream information on the social medias. We've posted it. Just follow that link. And uh, I hope you'll tune in and find out who wins. We did announce the finalist on the Amalgamania uh, Podcast and Entertainment Awards social medias. So it's all after all of these submissions and nominations, we are down to three finalists for each each category and i mean it's some of these categories are so close so close and so many good podcasts too uh yeah this was really difficult whittling this all down like all the judges did a great job of like doing their scores and making sure that you know they knew you know all the criteria going in like we had lots and lots and lots of meetings there was a lot of preparation we have a you know, a, a group chat that's gone back months with all these different things that we've put together. So it's been a uh, it's been a journey. I would say it's been a, a very uh, intense undertaking, a lot more work than I think some of us had initially uh, yes. planned for. Especially considering that we're all over the place: Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, Virginia. You know, so. Uh, I'm really proud of us. Yeah, I think we I'm proud uh, of this group. We nailed it. We have some celebrities announcing uh, finalists. Yeah, so you're gonna have to tune in tomorrow to see who those are. And make sure you watch to the very end because there's a special announcement. There is. So, uh, I think with that being said, nope. We will talk about the next thing that you were gonna say. <laughs> So we have a couple more things coming up in our future. Throwdown Thursday, we're not going to be there as Throwdown Thursday. We're just going to be there as, you know, Patsy and Ashes. But we're going to be at the 2021 Happenstance Horror Festival. Yes. Saturday, September 18th. Starting at 5 p.m. at Barnsies, Barnsies, excuse me, uh, Barrington Cinema. Uh, that is in Barrington or Barrington. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, New Hampshire. If you go, just check out Happenstance Horror Fest on Facebook. You'll be able to find all of the information that you need for that. Tickets are super cheap, $10 a person. You're going to be able to see a bunch of really great and just talented 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 uh films you know filmmakers uh their presentations uh vendors are going to be there as well so it should be a really 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 good time also we are going to be at monster expo and that is the weekend of October 16th and 17th. I mean, there may or may not be something else going on that weekend, too. It might be smack dab in the middle of Ashtober. And that weekend may just be Ashtoberfest. And you should definitely go to Monster Expo just for that. But uh, Monster Expo is going to be at the um, Seaport Inn in Fairhaven. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yes. So if you look up Monsta, that's M-O-N-S-T-A-H, because, you know, Massachusetts. Monsta. Uh, Expo, X-P-O, yeah, no on e in that. the Facebooks, you can find more information on that. But we will be there with the Dorkening Network, uh, our first official convention appearance in two since years. 2019 since, since rock and shock 2019 no since super mega fest 2019 so yes because that oh, was yes. november 
Yes, that, that was like around, the following month. Yes, we did because uh, we did. We did the Warriors episode because uh, of that. Well, that's not what I was talking the about. Fundraiser. But we did <laughs> We also were part of Dead of Autumn around that time as well. Yes, I think Dead of Autumn. Dead of Autumn came after the Dead of Autumn ended up being in December. It was in November. I thought it was like the first it week of December. It was in November. But anyways, what I'm trying to get at is it's been a long fucking time since Close we've done a convention. Years. This will be our first convention appearance in almost two years, and we are so unbelievably excited. So get your tickets. They're really inexpensive. This is a first-time convention. There really aren't any more horror conventions in the New England area. Or Massachusetts. Because um, there is one in Connecticut. Will you just let me finish my spiel, please? What are you, Steven Spielberg? Drink your coffee. I'm trying. Chew your gum. Uh, but anyways, we're going to be there. It's going to be a fantastic time. Time. Come celebrate my birthday with me. We're going to party. And... Uh, we have a bunch of folks who are going to be vendors there as well. Ocular Deceptions, it came from the 508. Make sure you go there and buy things from also, them. Also, uh, just announced, I believe it was today, uh, the dates for the Shaunashay Film Festival. That is uh, a multi-day event. It's from September 21st to September 25th. We will be there at some point. We need to figure out exactly what works into our schedule, but we will be there at some point supporting these fantastic filmmakers. And uh, that is such a great event. That Another event that we went to before everything just kind of imploded with the pandemic. But if you are looking for more information on that, definitely look up the Shauna Shea Film Festival on Facebook. Yes. And I think with... That being said, yes, we, we will, will see you next, next Thursday. Thursday.